You tuned in to the Kojo Namdi show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Later in the broadcast, we look at the struggle for vaccine equity in this region. But first, over 1,000 D.C. residents have now died from COVID-19. The D.C. morgue can only hold 205 people. So early last March, a decision was made to create an additional temporary morgue at a D.C. government parking lot in Southwest. Every person who died of COVID-19 in the district from April through June came through this morgue. If you're wondering why you haven't heard about it, that's because D.C. officials decided to keep it a secret. Workers there were instructed to not even tell their families where the morgue was located. Why did this morgue exist and why keep it a secret from the public and the families of the deceased? Joining me to discuss this is Luke Mullins. He is a senior writer with the Washingtonian magazine who broke the story. Luke Mullins, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kojo. Luke, let's start with why D.C. decided to build this morgue in the first place. What was the reasoning behind it? Yeah, it was really an issue uh, of capacity. Um, you know, we had projections of uh, a lot of um, COVID fatalities and uh, the city morgue um, in, in Southwest um, also has to continue accommodating the, the non-COVID fatalities that are happening in D.C. And then we're going to have this additional wave. Um, so they wanted a, a place um, to, to uh, be able to process the, the fatalities. Um, also... The, the DC, the um, the leaders of this effort at the DC Medical Examiner's Office made the decision that they were going to take jurisdiction of, of every single um, COVID fatality, um, which is different than the way a lot of other jurisdictions handled it. Uh, and the reason for that was because um, they had seen what had happened in New York, where morgues were sort of, a, 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 hospitals were allowed to sort of, um, uh, you know, process the, the, the fatalities in their own morgues, and they quickly became overwhelmed. Um, so after seeing that happen, the, the leaders, um, you know, Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Harvin, um, said, hey, we need to go ahead and create our own morgue um, so, so to, to, to prevent against um, that type of, of um, debacle. Where was this morgue, and how was the location chosen? So... Uh, the morgue, uh, it was inside the city, um, and uh, it was chosen, there, were, there was three components. They needed it to be a city-owned city owned land, um, and it needed to be big enough where they could move their equipment. Uh, there was a lot of sort of heavy-duty tractor trailers um, and um, uh, equipment like that that was, that was used to store and, and process the bodies. Um, and then also they were looking for a site that, was, that could be discreet, that you could sort of drive past it and not, not really see it. And uh, also that it could be secured. Um, and, and in fact, the, the site that was used was a, you know, a parking lot um, in, um, you know, in the city, a uh, city-owned parking lot that you know, had a fence around it and they, it was a chain-link fence and they, they ended up... Um, Kind of putting some black tarp around it, and then there, you know, there were there were armed guards out, outside of it. Also, is the morgue still there today? It is there. It's what they call it a warm site right now, meaning it is not being used because um, the the fatality caseload has not it is not at a level that it was in the spring that is sort of you know necessitating mm-hmm. its use. But it can they can have that up and running in a just a couple of days. A lot of the equipment is, is still there, and they, you know, they, they check it regularly to make sure. Um, but why, 
But why keep this makeshift morgue, officially called the COVID disaster morgue, why keep it a secret? Yeah, there's a number of reasons. Uh, one, the, the leaders of this effort uh, are experts in this field, which is known as um, mass fatality management. And through other efforts, they, they've found that these types of facilities can sort of trigger kind of a macabre curiosity and they can be sort of gathering sites for, um, you know, gawkers and people like that. They, they didn't want that. Two, they worried that news footage uh, could, could upset the family members they didn't want. Um, you know, so there was, there was a sensitivity issue as well. Um, but also there was a, you know, just a more political component that they didn't want additional scrutiny because you know, the stakes were really high here. In, in these types of events, um, you know, mistakes can be made. And, you know, a body can be, you know, released to the, to the wrong family, which would have been really uh, politically uh, devastating for the city. Um, so they were looking for as little um, um, public scrutiny as, as possible. And, and I, I should note that they, they, they didn't make any of those mistakes. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the political stakes were, were pretty high. This secret morgue began operating in April. Deaths from COVID were rising and there was a lot of fear with so much unknown about the virus. Was it difficult for the officials running the morgue to find people to do this kind of grim and risky work? Yeah, it, it was difficult. Um, you know, Dr. Harvin, who was uh, you know, the, the, the leader of the, the, you know, the executive of the effort, you know, he described it as a coalition of the willing. Um, they were, the city had been prepared for this. Um, for the past four or five years, um, both Dr. Harvin and the, the former uh, chief medical examiner, uh, Dr. Roger Mitchell, were really experts in, in mass fatality management. The, Dr. Harvin has, you know, was at, at 9-11, and uh, both Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Harvin were both at Sandy Hook. Uh, when they, they came to Washington, they one of their initiatives was to create this mass fatality management program, um, preparing for something you know, similar to this. Um, so they've been, you know, drilling and, and preparing for this for a while. And, and part of that is creating partnerships with with other uh, agencies, both both local and, and federal um, to put themselves uh, you know, in, in place for, for finding volunteers. But yeah, this was, you know, they had volunteers from, um, you know, they went through the uh, trade association for the, the national um, funeral directors association. They sent over funeral directors from, you know, as far away as Illinois. Um, there were, you know, the army was involved, both active duty and reserve. Uh, and, and there was, you know, the, the DC's medical reserve corps was also uh, providing volunteers. Um, there were some um, students, UDC um, pre-med students that were there as well. Yes, they had to find people who were willing to do this grim and risky work. Is it true that some of the workers and volunteers at the morgue had never touched or even seen a dead body before? That is true. They, they um, you know, some of the Army reservists, um, you know, had never, you know, this is mortuary work. So they had uh, some, you know, some people with mortuary experience, but also... People without that experience, so it was really important for the leaders, um, both you know Kim Lassiter, who was a you know a top executive there, along with Dr. Harvin, you know, to train these people to to, to uh, treat the, the fatalities as they would the, their own family, and they took tremendous pride uh, in that, and were were um, you took great care um, to to um, the, the goal was to provide you know a dignity uh, to in death. Um, to, to the, you know, to the, the hundreds and, and now a thousand um, people that we lost in the city um, to COVID. 
This sacred morgue was opened with prayers from members of the clergy, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim. Why did city officials ask them to come to the secret morgue, and were they, too, sworn to secrecy? So, yeah, there, Dr. Mitchell, who, who was the chief medical examiner, is, uh, is also a reverend. Um, and and they, for a number of reasons, they thought it was important. One was to have uh, this multi-faith community um, actually see the facility and make sure that there was nothing that they were doing that was going to sort of violate any of the tenets of their faith. Um, they also thought it was important to, to have, um, um, you know, to, to sort of, this was going to be sacred ground, right? There, there were going to be hundreds of, of, of our neighbors were, were going to pass through there. And uh, at the same time, they wanted to provide some solace to the staff that, that was working there under these very difficult conditions. Um, that um, was going to be both physically and, and, and emotionally very, very challenging. This morgue remained secret from the time it was created in April until your story was released on Monday. How did you find out about it, and why did D.C. officials decide to open up to you? So I was looking for, I wanted to write a, a story that could get at sort of the scope of of this tragedy. You know, it's, it's very different than other mass tragedies where there's sort of one specific event where you have loss of life. Uh, this, we're, we're having, you know, deaths, you know, thousands of deaths a day, and we've sort of become numb to it. So I wanted to, I wanted to get at, you know, the scope of that. And I, I assumed that there was someone in the government who had to account for uh, the, the loss of life. And I thought they would have uh, a, a, a powerful um, perspective. Um, so I ended up talking to the chief medical examiner's office. And, um, you know, so I started this probably six months ago and just talking with a number, a couple of folks there. And, um, you know, I think they were, they, I think they told me because they were proud of what they had done. You know, um, I think that's sort of about, what it came down to. Talk about Donnell Harvin, one of the people right. you refer to as the first responders you never see, the ones who go where the tragedy and mass deaths occur. Yeah, he is a, a, a remarkable guy. He, um, you know, grew up in, uh, in, in New, he's a native New Yorker and, you know, has really been present, responded to sort of the darkest times in all of American history. He, he responded to, uh, to, the the twin towers twice when it was bombed in 93 and then again in 2001 um as a, as a paramedic you know he went on to become an academic and then he has two master's degrees and, and a phd and he he ended up becoming an expert in this field of mass fatality management um and he comes to washington along with dr mitchell and they they really helped build out uh this this only um, have yeah only have a couple of minutes left, okay. but Donnell sure. Harvin would always give a speech to the new workers and right. volunteers. Could you please read some of what he told those workers when they first arrived? Yeah, when he comes in, he gives them this, this pep talk. He describes it as, um, there's not going to be a parade for you guys. You're not going to get discounts or big thank you signs. The work we do, we do in silence. Not even the family members of the victims will know what we've done. There's a pride in that. There's a silent pride in that. You're taking care of someone's grandmother, grandfather, husband, daughter, son, and that's a higher calling. It's a heavy burden, but the world is watching whether they see us or not. You know, another key player in this story is Kim Lassiter. Can you take uh, maybe 30 seconds to talk sure. about her? 
Kim Lassiter is a is a, is a local uh, you know, Washingtonian. She's from Prince George's County. Uh, has spent 25 years at the med- chief medical examiner's office. Um, is now uh, you know one of the veterans there and has spent her whole life um, uh, attending to uh, deaf victims. And as part of, of this specific effort, you know, she was sort of the, the, the kind of on-the-ground, day-to-day uh, leader, um, really hands-on um, and, and uh, you know, took incredible care to, to make sure all I, that... Yeah. All I got to say is you have to read Luke Mullins' story in The Washingtonian because you've gotten a lot of reactions to this story, and I'm pretty sure that people who read it will also react. Luke Mullins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We have received a statement from the Bowser administration expressing its pride in the work of those who worked and volunteered at what we've been calling the secret morgue. We also want to take this moment to express our condolences to the mayor, who yesterday lost her eldest sibling, Mercia Bowser, to COVID-19. Got to take a short break. Proud of those workers at the morgue. I'm Kojo Nandi. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.